Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. When I was in 11th grade anthropology class, my teacher, John Glendening, read us an excerpt from a book by James Missioner. I don't know if you remember James Missioner's books. They were very 1980s. They all had one-word titles like Space and Poland and Alaska and Centennial, and somehow I always associate them with airports. Well, in Missioner's book, The Source, which is about human origins, he offers a scene in which a Neolithic protagonist named Ur goes on a quest to find something very rare and precious. Quote, With a sudden rush, Ur sprang at the dead tree, climbed far up its side before any bees detected him, and with strong hands began tearing away rotted portions of the trunk. The passionate sound of bees springing into action assured him that there was honey to be found. So before the bees could swarm to drive him from their treasure, he tore down into the heart of the tree until he felt the honeycomb. Then the bees struck. Fifty, a hundred, flew at his face, covered his hands, tried to find his soft parts. They stung him and died with their bodies distended, but his numb hands kept tearing at the comb bringing out luscious chunks which he threw to the ground below. Finally, when he could scarcely see, he slid down from the tree, killing hundreds of bees as he fell. Only then did he start brushing the fiery creatures from his face, and when this was accomplished, he took off the animal skin he was wearing and piled the chunks of honeycomb into it. Then, as quickly as his bandy legs would carry him, he ran from the wadi, smarting throughout his body with an exquisite pain. When he reached the well, his face had swelled like a mid-month moon and his eyes could hardly see. But a child from the cave spotted him coming and shouted, Ur found honey, and he was besieged by children who led him up from the well to the cave, pointing at his distorted face and screaming with joy. With brave hands they touched his sack of honey and their mouths watered. But when Ur reached the safety of the cave and opened his sack to show the luscious hoard he had stolen from the bees, he found trapped in the honeycomb more than a dozen insects, and with his thick, hard fingers he picked them out and set them free. Make us more honey, he told each one, and do it in the same tree. So, yeah, it's not the best writing, but I remember hearing this at age 16 and having a sudden realization of what a thing it would be to encounter wild honey at that time. In a diet of foraged greens and nuts and berries and fish and meat, the only real taste of pure sweetness around. This translucent, oozing, golden nectar that pleases the tongue and makes the head giddy with the rush of its sugars. It must have been precious. It must have been sacred. And so it was. Honey was revered across the ancient world, found in Egyptian tombs and Chinese apothecaries, and referred to glowingly in ancient Sumerian medical texts. The myths and stories that come to us from the ancient world are soaked in honey. 
Story after story, myth after myth, from the Kalahari Desert to ancient Greece and India, heroes overcome obstacles to claim precious nectar. Honey finds its way to the tongues of poets, into the skulls of lions, the embalming fluids of pharaohs, even the poems of the British romantics. Well, honey is delicious and sweet, and so it all makes sense, right? It's also an antibiotic, antimicrobial. It basically doesn't spoil. There's been honey found in the tombs of Egypt that's still good. As an article in the Smithsonian said, you could dip into a thousand-year-old jar of honey and enjoy it without preparation as if it were a day old. It's a remarkable substance. But is that enough to explain the presence of liquid nectar in myth upon myth upon myth? There are strange commonalities in the myths and stories about nectar and honey that might cause us to look deeper. The association of honey and immortality. The descriptions of cascades or rivers of honey or nectar. Honey described as luminous dew. Honey within the skull or head or horns of creatures. Honey and paradise. Associations of honey with rapture and prophecy. Associations of honey with sound and with particularly effulgent qualities of light. When we delve into the myths and stories, we find that the prevalence of liquid nectar in myth, the common language all across the world of sweet, luminous, humming, effluent, is too central to be a coincidence, and too precise to simply be offering descriptions of physical honey or nectar. What we find can only lead to the conclusion that the honey being spoken of is experiential, it is a nectar of felt experience, specifically the nectar of heightened awareness, of, as some call it, trance, the nectar of trance. You've probably heard me talk about it before on this podcast, the cascade we feel when we enter the zone, the rush of pituitary hormones, a direct experience in meditative rapture of streams of sweet flowing liquid. It may sound like reach, it may sound like poetic license, but it's far from it, because in fact the nectars of trance have been described in painstaking detail in cultures across the world. So today we're going to go deeper into the subject than we've gone before. Today on the podcast we steep in the honeys of consciousness and find a common vision of luminous, sonorous liquid that pervades mystic discourse around the world. The honey that hums and blazes, somatic nectars of the trance state, this time on the emerald. I've mentioned the word amrita in prior episodes, the Sanskrit word for nectar. Amrita and its predecessor Soma show up everywhere in the Vedic myths. It's highly sought after, this precious liquid. Battles are fought for it, oceans are churned, primordial reptiles slain, all to claim this luminous nectar, this flowing, oozing substance. You may remember that in addition to nectar, Amrita also means deathless, immortal, amrita, immortal. And the Greek word for nectar, ambrosia, means exactly the same thing, ambrosus, immortal. So were the ancient Greeks and Indians privy to some magical potion of immortality? Probably not. 
although of course eventually many tried to find the nectar of immortality outside themselves. Taoists for a certain time period became obsessed with potions of immortality, drying baths beneath the moon and going through all kinds of elaborate preparations of bizarre substances seeking physical immortality. Probably never found it, because the true nectar being described is one of felt experience. The defining quality of the trance state, the state of flow, interesting that we describe it in liquid terms, right, is one of timelessness, of merging with the eternal, hence immortality. So when in deep rapturous meditation we enter the state of flow, when we are one with the present moment, this is the immortal nectar. This is why the Tibetan texts speak of Amrita as the elixir of timeless awareness. It's not an external liquid. It's a byproduct of steeping in the awareness of the present moment, which, when all the hormonal centers of the brain kick in, feels like being soaked in honey, basking in the nectar of the eternal now. This nectar has always been known to be reachable through a profound and focused presence, but it remains elusive to the mind that darts about. Consider the Greek story of Tantalus. Tantalus tried to steal ambrosia from the gods to give to other mortals, and what was his punishment when he was caught? He was sentenced to spend eternity standing in a pool of water beneath a fruit tree. Every time he reached up to grab a fruit, the branches pulled further away. Every time he stooped to take a drink, the water receded. He was eternally tantalized. The myth couldn't be clearer. Chase the immortal nectar, the ambrosia, and it stays always just out of reach. Find it instead, right here, right now. But for those out there who are into evidence, is this really enough evidence to say definitively that when the ancients were speaking of nectar and myths and stories, they were speaking of a somatic experience in heightened states of consciousness? And that's when we turn deeper to the Indian myths. If you ever need a decoder ring for myths, turn to India. Because in India, all the myths have been interpreted on all the many levels, inner and outer, for thousands of years. The Indian commentaries will tell you directly that when we're speaking of Amrita, of this immortal nectar, we're speaking of something that lives and is experienced inside the cranium. Here's Swami Muktabodhananda's commentary on the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, a classic yoga text from the 16th century or so. Quote, In various ancient texts of yoga and tantra, we come across the word ambrosia or nectar, 
This nectar is a fluid which is secreted from the brain. Its source is the center named Bindu Vasarga. This literally means the oozing point of the nectar drop. That nectar which flows from the moon has the quality of endowing illumination and liberation. And the Tirumandaram, the South Indian yogic classic, makes it even more clear. Within the golden regions of the cranium, the sparkling nectar flows in silver cascades. There it is inside, as in the astral spheres above. I bow before the supreme Bhairava, says the Bhairava Nukaranastava of Kshemaraja, whose nature is consciousness and whose form is supreme nectar. There it is. The nectar is meditative consciousness. Have you ever felt in the experience of letting go, of surrendering, whether in a yoga practice or in an amorous embrace or out in the majesty of nature or in a meditation circle, have you ever felt that surrender is followed by a type of warm cascade as if liquid is moving through you? So have others who have expounded on these exact same somatics, these textures of consciousness for centuries. This flow of nectar within the consciousness is described in great detail in the devotional traditions. As June McDaniel says in The Madness of the Saints, the somatic experience of divine consciousness is liquid. We feel it as liquid. Quote, Devotees float in the seas of rasa, that's sap, and the tides of bhava, that's ecstatic devotion. The mind melts, flowing like ghee or oil. The spiritual thirst is quenched by drinking the nectar of the holy texts through the ears. And for the true devotee, quote, his mind must be melted, and he must be open to the movement of liquids, nectar, waves of bhava, the ocean of aesthetic enjoyment, the continuous thought of Krishna like oil poured forth, like gold melted at high temperatures, like honey and butter melted in sunshine, or like nectar, always liquid, end quote. The Sri Sri Radha Rasa Sudhanidhi, the nectar ocean of the Divine Mother's flavors, is a poetic devotional text that pours the nectar on thick. It invokes sap within sap, nectar within nectar, fragrance upon fragrance, groves of buzzing and humming and bird calls, all to take the listener into the state of divine intoxication. The grove that is referred to repeatedly where the divine play takes place is the grove of the cranium, where, quote, nectar oozes from blooming flowers, whose fragrance pervades the whole forest. The bumblebees come quickly to drink the sweet honey, and they dance together throughout the play grove. The bird songs intoxicate even Kama, the lord of desire himself. End quote. Streams of honey nectar, the text says, flow from Sri Radha's feet towards surrendered souls. Quote, she whose lotus feet spring forth rivers of nectar, may she be my only shelter. The experience of the nectar of trance comes accompanied by experiences of sound and light. There's a great clamor, a hum, a buzz, in some cases a thunderclap. There's light that blazes and then the nectar pours forth. 
In the Tibetan practices, the state of rapturous consciousness is a seamless continuum of humming syllables, luminosity, and nectar. The bliss of the inner fire springs up, says Lama Yeshe, and melts the moon disk in the skull, and it drips onto the syllable, ah. This is like liquid butter pouring into a fire, so syllables blaze, hum, and drip. The vision is of consciousness as luminous, liquid, sweet, and sonorous. The mystic, says David Gordon White, rides the sound om into the place where various energetic essences reach the condition of honey. And according to the Nadabindu Upanishad, the final sound they hear as they move the prana up towards the violet expanses of the crown is the buzz of the bee. Quote, From within the continuum of emptiness, vast and spacious jeweled vessels arise. Within these vessels, the humming syllables om, ah, hum, dissolve into light. The offerings that arise from these syllables become a great ocean of nectar. A great rain of the attainment of longevity nectar falls here and now. A great rain of the attainment of longevity nectar falls here and now. Sometimes you go to a yoga class and chant a couple of ohms before practice, and maybe you think, yeah, that's nice, it helps me focus a little before asana. Or maybe you think, that's kind of weird, I don't really like oming, it feels arbitrary. And I can't blame you, there's a lot of soulless oming out there, cerebral oming, detached oming, and this misses entirely the humming, dripping, blazing nectar of the om sound, which is... Advanced technology refined over thousands of years to generate nectar right at the palate, right at the floor of the skull. It begins with the sound, ah, open, the deepest, most open sound that the human instrument can make right down in the heart, and then narrows it upwards, ooh, ah, ooh, and finally, with the tongue vibrating the palate, which is where the nectar lives. And then, in the silence afterwards, the nectar swirls and flows upward into vibrant space. Sound and light, these experiences of meditative consciousness, generate nectar. Nectar is the outflow, the residue of sonic potency. So when the Sri Sri Rasa Sudhanidhi speaks of the nectar of her name, it's not a metaphor. It's the fact that with the chanting of the name over and over and over, the vibrational resonance starts to exude nectar. Thy name is as ointment poured forth, says the text. This is the purpose of chanting. It's not some detached oral repetition. It's the use of sound to generate the nectar of timeless awareness. The sound causes the nectar to erupt in luminous streams. Begin the music, strike the tambourine, says Psalm 81. Play the melodious harp and lyre with sweet honey in the rock would I feed you. With sweet honey in the rock would I feed you.
many are the prophets and seers and mystics throughout the ages and across the world who have fed on this sweet honey. This nectar of the eternal now is the place of prophecy and luminous visions. And so prophets are repeatedly and nearly universally described in terms of honey. The 3A ancient oracles of Mount Parnassus sat on the banks of a subterranean spring within a deep cave and uttered prophecies born of honey. In the Kalahari Desert of South Africa, a divine messenger leads the shaman Gao to a tree that is full of bees and honey and pushes him inside the tree where the bees and honey saturated with potency deliver a song and dance to him. The honey dance, which is designed specifically to take people into the space of humming, luminous trance. When a man dances the honey dance, he becomes honey, Gao says. And San Art shows a recurring motif of shamans in states of trance surrounded by honey and bees. The buzz of bees, the luminous nectar flow of honey, trance, illumination, prophecy. Now, studying the work of mythologist Joseph Sansonesi has taught me something when it comes to myth. Always pay very close attention to anatomical features being discussed in myths. They're not there by accident. They're very specific, in fact. The honey dew of counsel flows from the minds and mouths of the poets blessed by the muses, say the Greeks. Which is why, at the legendary bard poet Homer's palate, the base platform of his skull, there was said to live a bee that dripped honey. The palate as the source of honey has to do with its proximity to the glands that secrete hormonal nectars. The palate is the launching pad that vibrates with the divine name when we invoke the sound of om and then steep in the residual nectars, which is called, in myths and yogic texts, drinking honey. All across the world, the prophets and seers drink honey. I feel the adamantine nectar of immortality on my tongue says the Tibetan Nechung text. The Nechung oracle is the state oracle of Tibet. The Nechung practice features the invocation of a deity whose name translates as the adamantine nectar swirler, who stirs up the honey of timeless awareness and sends the oracle into trance. This illuminated consciousness, the text says, presents a delightful sacramental offering of pure nectar to the supreme speech of the accomplished ones that strike their palates with their tongues. Even Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Kubla Khan, whom the author received in a mystic vision, speaks to this common vision of eating honey. His flashing eyes, his floating hair, he on honeydew hath fed and drank the milk of paradise. Do you remember John the Baptist? Sometimes when we hear the Christian stories in their modern and fairly sanitized Sunday church versions, it's easy to forget how they blaze with the nectar of illuminated vision. Who was John the Baptist? A prophet who lived in the wilds, in the desert. And what did he eat? Do you remember? He ate locusts and wild honey. That's right, his food was buzzing insects and honey. So yeah, some people go to Google and type in, are locusts edible, and did John the Baptist really eat bugs? And maybe he did, who knows? Good food is hard to come by in the desert. 
But when there's a universal mythic link between humming sound, eating honey, and the prophetic vision of the trance state, we can feel it a little deeper. John the Baptist lived off the buzzing nectar in the region of his mouth. You tell me what that means. John the Baptist lived off the buzzing nectar at the floor of his skull. A thousand years earlier, his biblical counterpart, King Solomon, master of spiritual forces in many, many traditions, also ate the nectar of the eternal now. So the Song of Solomon says, quote, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my locks with droplets of the night. So he's in his garden, his own skull. He's in a state of wakened sleep, the trance state. He has eaten honey. His head is drenched in dew. You tell me if that is coincidence. This vision of the head drenched in dew, and the dew is synonymous with the honey of trance, finds its home in Jewish mystical texts, in alchemical texts, in Islamic and Western mysticism. In the Kabbalic understanding, there are seven heavens, and the uppermost heaven is the home of the dew that resurrects. The dew that resurrects is obviously the same thing as Amrita, the immortal nectar, dew that resurrects, immortal nectar. It's called in the Zohar, as Howard Schwartz explains in his book Tree of Souls, the treasury of dew that revives the dead which lives in the uppermost heaven. And where is this uppermost heaven? It's in the skull, of course. From the Zohar, quote, The vast countenance has been formed in the likeness of a cranium, and it is filled with crystalline dew. This crystalline dew emanates from a single point. Remember the Bindu Visarga from the Hatha Yoga text, the oozing point of nectar in the skull right above the palate? This is called in the Zohar the point of equilibrium, quote, The point of equilibrium exists through itself, it cannot be grasped or seen. By it has been weighed that which was, that which is, and that which will be. This most concealed mystery is formed and prepared in the skull, filled with crystalline dew. This source of nectar in the skull, this radiant point, is also seen in many traditions as a moon. Here's David Gordon White again, quote, The head, and more specifically the cranial vault, is the locus of the cooling moon, a moon whose rasa is none other than vital essence that has been carried upwards by the yogic process and transmuted into nectar. And from Western alchemy, the moon, the luna, is the sap of the water of life, bountiful nurse of the dew, 
The soul is a spiritual substance of a spherical nature like the globe of the moon that holds a primal dew, moon dew, it's called. The moon as a source of nectar in the consciousness crosses cultural boundaries. So the Sri Sri Radha Sudhanidhi says of the goddess, who is synonymous with awakened consciousness, quote, her moon-like face brims with honey and causes the ocean of sap to swell. When it's not a moon emitting this nectar, often it's a stone. The hero Hercules, and the hero is almost always synonymous with the awakened consciousness, strikes a rock and a spring gushes forth, and Orpheus and Jason drink of it like insects drink honey. The rock poured out for me streams of oil, says the Bible, streams of sweet honey in the rock. The rock, the oozing point, the pineal or pituitary gland, the cosmic center point surrounded by the reverberation of its own effluent, the nectar pours forth from the land itself, from every inch of the geography of the awakened consciousness. During the height of the ecstatic trance revelry of the ancient Greek Mayanads, there is a roaring sound of thunder, a great rupture, and then springs of water, milk, and wine flow from the earth, and the ceremonial thyrsus, the rod or the staff, drips honey. Honey drips from the laurels at the crown of the thyrsus. Laurels, of course, are the plant associated with awakened prophetic consciousness. The laurel whose steam grants prophecy to the oracles of Delphi, who themselves are called bees. The laurel whose divine insight gives us the word poet laureate. So spiritual rupture in the form of thunder causes the honey to flow. The honey flows from where? from the crown on top of a rod, which is, of course, the skull on top of a spine. The rod or axis or serpent or tree as the source of nectar permeates many mythic visions. The Ashvins, the celestial twins of the Rig Veda, bear the honey lash, a rod that exudes sweetness that springs from heaven. When it strikes a person, it sustains their radiance, quote, the way that bees continually emit honey. The meaning of the honey lash has been debated by Indian and European scholars for many, many years. Yet a rod, an axis that emits honey and that carries with it the power of striking awake and the potential for a downpour of life-giving sweetness, is not that difficult to feel out somatically, especially since it's a vision that's found everywhere. In the Norse myths, it's the world tree itself, Yggdrasil, the central axis of the universe that emits this rain of honey. From the antlers of the stag Ekthernir, positioned high atop the world tree, flows an eternal spring. This dew, which fell from the tree to the earth, was called the honey fall, Hunangfall, says Hilda Ransom in her wonderful book on mythologies of bees and honey. The honey dew of the world tree, which again emits from a crown, this time in the form of antlers, on top of an axis, cranium on top of spinal column, emitting honey. Think about it. Think about antlers. Actually, don't think. Feel antlers. Feel where they are on the head. Right across the line of the temples, antlers emitting dew atop a central tree. 
the world tree itself, the spine. Can you feel it? The fact that a rising serpent coils around the world tree completes the vision. These myths are speaking directly of what in India is called Kundalini. It couldn't be any more clear. Listen to the story of the Greek prophet Iamos, who's born in a thicket the color of radiant bluish-purple violets, the color of awakened consciousness, raised on honey fed to him by serpents, raised, it is said, on the sweet dew of humming bees. His name Iamos is the fusion of the word venom and violet, transmuter of the venom into nectar. The serpents rise, the poison is transmuted to nectar, the honey pours forth. This is a Greek myth which could have easily jumped right from the pages of a tantric manual on kundalini. From The Alchemical Body by David Gordon White again, the kundalini is poison when she remains asleep in the lower abdomen. She is nectar precisely when she rises up to unite with the absolute in the yogin's cranial vault. This union is accompanied by an outpouring of nectar. The Namalvar, Hymns for the Drowning, the devotional songs of the Alvars, describes the moment of the release of the cranial nectar in beautiful detail. Quote, that moment. With the sound of rivers streaming backwards into their mountains, and the sound of the serpent wrapped around the mountain, and the sound of the sea churning, now left, now right. The Lord drew out the divine elixir that rose slowly in the churning. This moment that the Alvars described is the central purpose of practice, oneness, wholeness, the flow of the immortal nectar of the present moment. It's available to all, but it remains hidden for most. Goraknath, one of the original Hatha yogis, says, Quote, in the circle of ether is an inverted well that is the place of nectar. He who has a teacher drinks his fill. He has no teacher goes thirsty. And the mystic poet Kabir, the well of heaven has an opening below, think of the base of the skull. Its bucket is in the underworld. The swan drinks of its water, but few know of its source. But for those who are connected to the source, for those who do eat the honey, Many things can happen. In Madness of the Saints, June McDaniel interviews a devotee of a female prophet saint named Yogeshwari. On the new moon night, the devotee says, Yogeshwari worships the mother goddess and goes into a trance. At such times, I've seen honey dripping from her hands. When she would fall into trance, she would run about like a drunkard in bare feet. There are smells of sandalwood and flowers. Sometimes her hands would flow with red powder, and sometimes rice and lentils would appear. I myself have drunk honey which appeared dripping from her matted hair. And for the prophets who live on honey, their dwelling place is paradise. For what is paradise but the awakened consciousness of the eternal present? Paradise where Gabriel hands Muhammad what but a goblet full of honey?
Rivers of honey run in paradise, say the suras. Paul visits paradise and beholds streams running with honey, milk, wine, and oil. The Vikings are served honeymead in great horns in Valhalla, the land of milk and honey, the awakened consciousness. The Yoga Vashista speaks of concentric oceans of curd, beyond that an ocean of ghee, an ocean of wine, an ocean of sugarcane juice, beyond that an ocean of crystalline water. The universe itself is as a great vessel of nectar, a deep and unbridled ocean of nectar, say the Tibetan texts. And so in the Tibetan practices, oceans of nectar are offered back within consciousness to the source of nectar, which is ultimately consciousness itself. Quote, Inside an immense skull cup as extensive as the billion world system, and within an ocean of nectar, offerings of sacred ornaments are piled high like a mountain, Such outer and inner offerings extensively fill the whole earth and sky. I offer this nectar ocean to the lords of place. Please accept it and be my good and steadfast friends. Yeah, this episode has a lot of references. They are The Alchemical Body by David Gordon White, Apples of Apollo by Carl Ruck, The Yoga Chudamani Upanishad, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and Sri Sundarya Lahari. There are good versions from the Bihar School of Yoga. Nechong, The Ritual History and Institutionalization of a Tibetan Protector Deity by Christopher Bell. Godman, The Word Made Flesh, an esoteric Christian text from the early 1900s which equates all the biblical characters to somatic phenomena. That's by George Carey and Inez Eudora Perry. The Bliss of Inner Fire by Lama Yeshe. The Zohar, the Tirumandaram, the Rigveda, the Yoga Vashistha, Namalvar, Hymns for the Drowning by A.K. Ramanujan, the Bible, Song of Solomon and other psalms, the Sri Sri Radha Rasa Sudhanidhi, Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, A Cosmos in Stone and Deciphering Ancient Minds by David Lewis Williams, Madness of the Saints by June McDaniel, Mysterium Conjunctionis by Carl Jung, Tree of Souls, The Mythology of Judaism by Howard Schwartz, Bhairava Nukaranastava of Kshema Raja, The Sacred Bee in Ancient Times and Folklore by Hilda Ransom. The Science Behind Honey's Eternal Shelf Life by Natasha Geeling, writing in Smithsonian Magazine in August of 2013. And, of course, The Source by James Missioner, or whoever wrote it for him. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash theemeraldpodcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. (music) 